Yes, it turns out he is back. We're referring in this case to the Brontosaurus. Yes, we're happy to report that decades after scientists decided that the famed dinosaur, surely the most famous dinosaur, never actually existed, new research now says the opposite. Now, this apparently is not truly a news story. It appeared in Scientific American in April of 2015, but it's news to us. So it is that we inform you that some of the largest animals ever to walk on Earth were, of course, the long-necked, long-tailed dinosaurs known as the sauropods. The most famous was undoubtedly the brontosaurus, thunder lizard. Here's the story. The first of the brontosaurus genus was named in 1879, by the paleontologist Othniel Charles Marsh. That specimen still stands on display at the Great Hall of Yale's Peabody Museum of Natural History. But, as it would turn out in 1903, paleontologist Elmer Riggs found that Brontosaurus was apparently the same as the genus Apatosaurus, which he had first described in 1877. And in such cases, the rules of scientific nomenclature state that the oldest name has priority, which seemed to doom Brontosaurus to yet another extinction. But they took a look at this again in 2015, and it turns out that the original Apatosaurus and Brontosaurus fossils appear different enough to belong to separate groups after all. They published a nearly 300-page study, which analyzed 477 different physical features of 81 sauropod specimens. And they concluded that there were three known species of Brontosaurus. Anyway, like a lot of people, we always liked the Brontosaurus and are glad to see that it appears to be back. Although it's not universally agreed that the Apatosaurus and Brontosaurus are different. The article on this quoted a Kenneth Carpenter, director and curator of paleontology at Utah State University's Eastern Prehistoric Museum, saying this study was impressive, but notes the fossils on which Apatosaurus are based have not been described in detail and suggests that researchers should have done so if they wanted to compare it with Brontosaurus. Is Brontosaurus valid after all, he asked? Well, maybe, but he thought the verdict was still out. I suppose, being this came out six years ago, we here at Radio Parallax should have done some due diligence and seen where it stands here this year, but, eh, we haven't. I guess that does betray a certain pro-Brontosaurus bias on our part. Well, I don't know. So sue me. We are the first to admit that Fred Flintstone could not possibly have ordered Bronto ribs at the drive-in. Why not? Uh, because there's a 60 million year gap between the end of the dinosaurs and the beginning of us. Oh. I do remember hearing uh, the legendary evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould telling a story of how he was at summer camp and made a dollar bet with one of the fellow kids at camp that alley-oop could not possibly have ridden a dinosaur because humans and dinosaurs did not coexist. The bet was to be settled when their fathers showed up for the weekend. Unfortunately for Gould, it turned out his dad couldn't make it that weekend, and the other kid's dad said, Oh yeah, absolutely. You've seen how Alley-Oop rides the dinosaur? You gotta pay up, son. And so Gould was forced to pay up, but he wasn't happy about it then, and he wasn't happy about it when he told the story decades later. Here's a more recent story about dinosaurs from a recent issue, in this case, June 26th of The Economist. The Science and Technology section notes 
that it's pretty clear now that dinosaurs once flourished near the North Pole. To quote from the magazine, most artistic impressions of dinosaurs picture them in lush forests on a vast temperate savanna. That is fair enough. Such landscapes were common during the Beast's heyday, the Jurassic and Cretaceous periods. These pictures do, though, ignore the fact that dinosaur fossils have, for decades, been dug up in places which were, at the time, polar. Whether those remains were migrants that came in for the summer or permanent residents was debated, but a recent discovery of bone fragments and teeth from dinosaur hatchlings, just published in Current Biology by Patrick Druckenmiller of the University of Alaska Fairbanks and colleagues, suggests some dinosaurs did indeed make their full-time home in the Arctic. What does this say about the possibility of uh, out-of-control global warming and returning to a time when things were as hot as they were during the era of the dinosaurs? Well, we're not going to go there today, but it ain't good. And if we're talking about climate change and the moon, which we were a moment ago, we would cite some articles which have been all over the, uh, the media of late. In this case, I'm citing an article from Reuters by a Dan Fastenberg. And I don't know that he wrote the, the the headline for this, but the headline is Wobbly Moon Could Bring Coastal Flooding in the 2030s. When I saw that, I thought, what do you mean wobbly moon? Well, wobbly is, is not, not the right word to have used, but the story is that U.S. coastlines are going to face increased flooding in the mid-2030s thanks to a regular lunar cycle that will magnify rising sea levels caused by climate change, according to research led by NASA scientists. Now, the fact of the matter is the moon does go through an 18.6-year cycle where it basically comes back to the same position it started. This is why if you have a, say, total solar eclipse and you wait 18.6 years, the lineup of sun, moon, and earth will repeat itself and you'll get a similar, though not identical, eclipse all over again. As it would turn out, in half of this lunar cycle, the Earth's regular daily tides get diminished, with high tides lower than usual and low tides higher than usual. But in the other half of the cycle, the situation gets reversed. The high tides are higher and the low tides are lower. So in spite of the goofy headline, this is a real phenomenon and probably will cause a bit of trouble here in the United States and everywhere on Earth in about a decade. And sadly, this prediction pushes previous estimates for serious coastal flooding forward by about 70 years. They were saying the year 2100 before, now they're saying 2030. And unfortunately, I've got further bad news. This comes from the Planetary Society's magazine, The Planetary Report. I've been a member for many a year. And on a monthly basis, they sent out a pretty cool, glossy magazine to talk about things planetary. The June issue featured a cover story saying, Asteroids have been hitting the Earth for billions of years. It's time to hit back which, frankly, is another stupid headline. But, of course, the issue of near-Earth objects possibly hitting the Earth and repeating what happened to Brontosaurus and others 60-some-odd million years ago is, 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 a, is a real concern. In fact, back in 1998, there were two big-budget Hollywood movies that addressed this very issue. One was called Armageddon. The other one was called Deep Impact. I think it's worth reading from the magazine's evaluation of both. Writing about Armageddon... Kate Howells, writing in the Planetary Report, said, in answer to the question, what it got right, that basically the only thing Armageddon got right are that it's possible for an asteroid to hit Earth and that what looks like a single asteroid might actually be a group of asteroids bound together gravitationally. As to what it got wrong, <laughs> Howells just said, 
so, so much. The movie confuses asteroids, comets, and meteors. One character gets space dementia. The timing of events in the movie is extraordinarily unrealistic. The asteroid is detected only 18 days from impact. And with that time frame, NASA is able to precisely determine its composition, map its surface, calculate how much force needed to split it in half, and sends up oil drillers to operate in space. As for deep impact, the magazine said, it's a breath of fresh air next to Armageddon. And if you only watch one, we recommend this one. The timescale is more believable, and the technology depicted makes a bit more sense. It also acknowledges that blowing up a comet could create debris that could still impact Earth. Anyway, we plan to see neither. But in a more important article titled Risky Business by Jason Davis, subtitled Will the World Rise to the Challenge of Asteroid Defense? To quote from the piece, you don't have to look far to see the impact, no pun intended, that asteroids can have on other worlds. All it takes is a pair of binoculars to get a close-up look at the moon's craters, formed over time mostly by volcanic eruptions and asteroid impacts. Nevertheless, it's been an uphill battle for scientists to show that asteroids have previously wreaked large-scale destruction on our own planet. About a three-hour drive northeast from Phoenix, Arizona, lies a giant hole in the desert named Barringer Crater. It's a kilometer wide and 500 feet deep. In 1960, planetary scientist Gene Shoemaker said the article, and his colleagues found a mineral called coesite at the Behringer. Coesite only forms under high pressure, the kind of pressure you'd expect from an asteroid impact. Twenty years later, father-son duo of Louis and Walter Alvarez announced they'd found high concentrations of iridium in the worldwide band of rock that marks the end of the Cretaceous period. They noted that levels of iridium that high don't show up naturally on Earth, but do in meteorites that fall from the sky. By 1990, scientists had found a candidate dinosaur-killing crater at the tip of Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula. The piece notes that today, most of the public seems convinced that asteroid impacts should be taken seriously. Opinion polls consistently show that most U.S. residents believe defending our planet should be one of NASA's top priorities. But, notes the article, looking at NASA's budget, you wouldn't infer that the public feels so strongly about stopping dangerous asteroids because less than 1% of NASA's $23 billion budget for this year went toward planetary defense. That is almost 40 times more than what the agency spent on asteroid defense 15 years ago. Back in 2005, Congress passed a law directing NASA to find at least 90% of all near-Earth objects. That is, objects that came close to the Earth and were... 460 feet or larger. There was just one problem, notes Planetary Report. Congress didn't give the space agency the money it needed to fulfill the goal, and NASA didn't request it. The original 2020 deadline of 15 years came and went, and today fewer than 40% of asteroids that size and larger have been found. How do we know how many asteroids are out there? Well, after Gene Shoemaker passed away in 1997, the Planetary Society established a grant program in his name, to fund astronomers who would find, track, and study near-Earth asteroids. Since then, the Society has awarded 62 grants to observers in 19 countries on six continents. The article notes that Amy Mainzer, planetary scientist and professor with the University of Arizona, has been trying since 2005 to get NASA to launch a space telescope that would specifically hunt for near-Earth objects. One problem is a lot of these objects are dark as charcoal briquettes, so what they need to do is look in the infrared for the heat signatures of these objects. Well, apparently there's a a space telescope 
called NEO Surveyor, which could be ready to fly as soon as 2026. But NASA has been reluctant to request funding for the mission, citing other science priorities. More important than asteroids that might knock out a city? Hmm. And so until NEO Surveyor launches, NASA's only space-based asteroid hunter is a telescope that wasn't specifically designed for the job in the first place. This is the Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer, WISE, launched in 2009 on a mission to scan the sky for nearby cool stars and faraway bright galaxies. Although the WISE telescope was deactivated in 2010, three years later it revived it as an infrared hunter of asteroids called NEO-WISE. The piece notes that NEO-WISE has worked in a pinch. It's not optimized for asteroid hunting, nor is it located between the Sun and the Earth, which is where it ought to be to look where it should be looking. Atmospheric drag is slowly pulling it back toward our planet, and its mission will end no later than 2025, when I presume it will crash back into Earth. The magazine also notes that uh, people have been trying to spread the word about planetary defense. Planetary Radio's Matt Kaplan, who's been a guest on this show um, several times, hosted several experts on this. One of them was Bruce Betts, who's also been on this program several times, to talk about the asteroid threat and the latest developments in the efforts to defend planet Earth. And you know, Mr. Miller, it's time we brought uh, either or both of those men back on to talk about these developments. Yes. Let's stay in space here for a little longer. We note that after spending more than two years circling and studying an ancient space rock, NASA's OSIRIS-REx spacecraft has fired its engines and begun a long journey home. In the, in the probe's belly contains a precious cargo, possibly more than a pound of grit, which is grabbed from the rubbly surface of the asteroid Bennu. Bennu is as big as the Empire State Building and 4.5 billion years old. Right now, Bennu is about 200 million miles from the Earth, but the spacecraft is going to have to put in 1.4 billion miles on the clock before rendezvousing back here with Earth. The SUV-sized craft will circle the sun twice and reach the Earth in September of 2023. When it gets within 6,000 miles, a small capsule containing the samples will separate from Osiris in Earth's atmosphere, and if all goes well, land in Utah's Great Salt Lake Desert. They've done this before, by the way, and it worked then, and hopefully it'll work again. We mentioned some time ago in this program the discovery of what's being billed as the largest comet ever discovered. It was sighted far out in our solar system, and as I understand it, is believed to be making its first trip in toward the sun. Of course, in toward the sun is a little misleading. It's only going to get as close as Saturn before heading back out to the Oort cloud, but... A lot of breathless astronomers are reporting that they seem to see some cometary activity on it even now. It's a cool thing. We're going we're gonna to follow that story. And are relieved to note that uh, you can rest assured that this one is not going to hit the Earth. In fact, it's probably not going to hit Saturn either. But unfortunately, when it comes to collisions in space, we, we have some bad news. Last September, the New Yorker published an article about space debris that I don't think we ever got around to talking, mis- talking about Mr. McMillan. The piece opens up describing what happened in an international space station when ground control radioed up that there was some evidence that a piece of debris could intercept the path of the international space station and, well, let's just say, cause some problems. The crew was informed that they probably should climb into the Soviet Soyuz spacecraft, which would allow them to return to Earth safely in case the piece of debris did strike the space station. 
Although here's a part of the detail of the article that I really like. Two hours before the, the supposed possible interception, Mission Control contacted the astronauts to remind them that they had an interview scheduled with the morning news program in Florida and also in Kentucky. NASA reasoned that there was time to proceed. The interview would take less than 20 minutes, and the lockdown was in half an hour. Seriously, astronaut Kelly wrote in his log, we have a satellite coming at us, but he and cosmonaut Korienko got into positions without protest and uh, answered questions about the Kentucky Derby, performed a few zero-gravity stunts, and tried not to show that they were in a life-threatening situation. <laughs> Kelly asked Houston if the debris hurtling toward the space station would be visible as he was closing the hatches on, the, on this craft. He got a response, it will be an orbital night, Houston told them, so no viewing opportunity. How about relative velocity, he asked. 14 kilometers per second. Copy, said Kelly. This meant that the station and the object were closing in on one another at a combined speed of 31,000 miles an hour. When you're going at this kind of speed, a one-centimeter bolt would has roughly the explosive force of a hand grenade upon impact. And wouldn't you know it, this object, number 36912, was at least 10 times larger than that. The article notes that when the space station's shielding was being designed, NASA astrophysicist Donald Kessler had asked experts to shoot small objects at metal film canisters at hypervelocities. The ballistics revealed that, that even if debris penetrated the ISS cleanly, it would leave a mangled hole upon exit. So it was object number 36912 risks triggering a chain of failures that would destroy the entire space station. I didn't realize the space station has different sections, but apparently it does. The article notes that after locking down the American modules, Kelly caught up with Kornienko and Padalka, his fellow travelers, in the Russian section. Padalka, who was the commander of the space station, strove to project confidence. When Moscow Mission Control asked him about the mood on board, he responded, Fighting spirit! Kelly noted that none of the modules were shut in the Russian section, noting that the Russians don't close their hatches like we do. They think it's a waste of time. The reasoning is that the two most likely scenarios are the thing misses or catastrophic destruction. The stuff in between is way too unlikely to care about. Kelly said he was amazed to find the cosmonauts having lunch. We wanted to eat, Korniko told me. Noted the author of the piece, Russians have a proverb, war is war, but lunch runs on time. The Soyuz's food supply was limited to three days. Who knew how long they might be stranded inside that rescue vessel? Anyway, all three men found their way into the Soyuz capsule and waited for 12.01, Greenwich Mean Time. Astronaut Kelly noticed Kornienko gazing out of a porthole. He said, Misha, you're not going to see anything. That thing is going 30,000 miles an hour and it's dark outside. Then he said, I noticed I was looking out the window and listening and tensing out. And at some point realized we wouldn't even know if we got hit. We'd just be vaporized. Anyway, it has a happy ending. A couple minutes passed. They got to 12.03 and they radioed down, Moscow, do we keep waiting? The radio crackled. That's all. Later, the U.S. Air Force put, put its distance of near rendezvous at a mile and a half. That's a, that's a gap that would have closed faster than the blink of an eye. Luckily, Object 36912 did incinerate itself in the Earth's atmosphere just three weeks later. Now, this article talks at some length about Don Kessler, the NASA astrophysicist who had helped assess the International Space Station's vulnerability to debris. Kessler became very interested in the possibility of disasters from collisions back in the 1970s. He took a look and discovered that the prevailing attitude about orbital debris at NASA was based on a mistaken assumption. 
that the only artifacts worth worrying about were in NORAD's catalog. NORAD, of course, keeps track of everything orbiting the Earth. Well, correction, everything of a certain size. Kessler had spent some time discovering how asteroids had smacked into one another out in space, and he knew that very small objects were far from negligible. Even a minuscule shard could smash a satellite to pieces. And if the population of objects became dense enough, collisions would trigger one another in an unstoppable cascade. Fragments would grow smaller, more numerous, more uniform in direction, resembling a maelstrom of sand, a nightmare scenario that became known as the Kessler Syndrome. At some point, this process would render all of near-Earth space unusable. Theoretically, Kessler mused, our planet could acquire a ring akin to Saturn's, but made of garbage. In 1976, Kessler wrote up an internal note that explored some scenarios of how this could happen in a disastrous way, and the folks at NASA pretty much dismissed the report as too theoretical. As for Kessler's party, search for more data. When he learned that an Air Force radar station in North Dakota had been briefly recalibrated to take more sensitive readings, he reached out and discovered a large, uncatalogued population of debris. After presenting this data to Chris Kraft, the strong-willed and bold head of America's space program, the guy that Neil Armstrong once called the control in Mission Control, Kraft instructed him to spend no more than 10% of his time on this particular subject. Then notes the article, in 1978, a Soviet intelligence satellite called Cosmos 954 fell from the sky, and um, it was nuclear-powered. It had a reactor core containing more than 60 pounds of enriched uranium. Breaking up over remote northwestern Canada, Cosmos 954 scattered radioactive wreckage for hundreds of miles. Recovery crews dressed in hazmat suits, working in extreme conditions, in some places colder than 40 below, struggled to reclaim it. Cosmos 954's breakup became an international incident, prompting officials from around the world to scramble for information about derelict satellites. Suddenly, the U.S. Secretary of State was speaking about hazards of space. United Nations officials, suspecting that Cosmos 954 had collided with something in orbit, sought Kessler out. At this point, Kessler decided he'd have to work on the project either fully or not at all, so he insisted on meeting Chris Kraft again. Looming over the meeting was the impending fate of Skylab. Kessler had previously been the flight controller for Skylab. It was at that point the largest structure orbiting in space, and by that time it had been derelict for years. Kessler's superiors later recalled, We had abandoned Skylab without a full appreciation of what that meant. It was only a matter of time before Skylab, like Cosmos 954, came crashing back to Earth, or was hit by something and splintered into pieces. Kessler arrived at the meeting, found it packed with NASA VIPs, including officials who had objected to his research. He was convinced his career was in the line, but he told the author, I know I had a story to tell. Determined to offer pragmatic solutions, he explained that he'd discovered that the largest source of debris at the time was spent Delta rockets, which were exploding in orbit, often long after they were, quote, presumed dead, unquote. A simple design change would have prevented those explosions. He recalled the solution was not to spend less time in space, it was to do it more responsibly. Chris Kraft then became a convert. We would be crazy not to continue, he told Kessler, vowing to obtain funding for a full-time study of the problem. Go do it, he said. Noted the article, three months later, Skylab was hurtling downward over the Indian Ocean. A blue fireball in the starry pre-dawn sky, according to a NASA history. The fireball then turned 
red-orange, and splintered into five pieces. Early risers in southwestern Australia saw the blazing fragments. In Perth, they rattled windows with a sonic boom. The disintegrating Skylab rained tons of debris across the Australian outback. Nobody was hurt, but one town, the Shire of Experance, later issued NASA a littering ticket with a $400 fine. Anyway, Kessler knew that the most worrisome region was the one closest to the Earth, low Earth orbit, or LEO, which extends about 1,200 miles above sea level. At the bottom of LEO, where gravity holds together a semblance of sky, the atmosphere is thick enough to cause circling objects to lose energy and return to Earth quickly, a self-cleaning process that keeps the density of debris low. The International Space Station is kept there in part for safety. Anyway, Kessler got together a team of five specialists, got a budget of $70,000. Some of the people agreed to help him part-time to study the LEO's growing congestion. They became space detectives, piecing together clues from the kinetic, chaotic world above. To measure the quantity of debris that had been left out of NORAD's catalog, they got access to an MIT telescope at New York's White Sands Missile Range, which could glimpse fragments as small as a centimeter. And when the space shuttle returned to Earth, the team treated it as a source of evidence. Shuttle windows were often marred by impacts, but typically would not be removed for analysis. During one flight, however, an incoming object gashed a window so badly that it had to be scrapped. The team seizing the discarded component learned that the damage had been caused by a minute speck of paint that had flaked off another orbiting machine. And to make all this so much worse, nations have contemplated the use of anti-satellite technology. Back in 1968, the Soviets had initiated a series of anti-satellites, or ASAT experiments, in which a spacecraft packed with explosives would approach a target satellite, then self-destruct, its own shrapnel serving as a weapon. Kessler spent months tracking a mysterious swarm of tiny, perfectly spherical objects, suspecting that they'd come from a Soviet ASAT test, intending to prepare for a nuclear war. Well, the source turned out to be even odder. It was a Soviet naval satellite that ejected its reactor core before it fell to Earth. The spherical objects were globs of liquid metal coolant that had been jettisoned. When we approached the Soviets, they said, yup, we did that, Kessler recalled. Then they said, nope, nope, we didn't. Then they said, oh, they're going to evaporate. And of course, in 1985, Kessler got drawn into Ronald Reagan's Star Wars initiative when the Air Force decided to conduct its own ASAT, shooting down a satellite with a missile fired from an F-15. Kessler begged the military to forego the test. We said, it's going to create a lot of debris, he recalled. The Defense Department was unmoved. They told us, you don't know what's going to happen. It may just leave a clean hole. Well, as it turned out, when the dust settled on this, there were larger and more destructive fragments than even Kessler and his team had been able to foresee. And to continue with this disturbing piece, the more Kessler studied Earth's near-space environment, the more worrying the trend lines looked. By the 1990s, he'd become convinced that collisions in the most populous orbits were cascading, spraying fragments across hundreds of miles. These unstable regions will act as an increasing source of small debris in all of low Earth orbit for centuries, he warned. In 1986, a European rocket body had broken up, most likely because something collided with it. One of its fragments orbited for years before smashing into a stabilizing boom on a French reconnaissance satellite. And wouldn't you know it, in 2007, the Chinese military conducted a surprise ASAT test, firing a missile at a weather satellite scattering so much shrapnel that the ISS is still maneuvering around the fragments. 
In February 2009, 400 miles above Siberia, two intact satellites rammed into one another for the first time. One was owned by Iridium, the American communications company, and the other was a derelict Soviet Cosmos satellite. They were traveling at tremendous speeds. Upon impact, plumes of shrapnel spread outward like ribbons around the globe. The collision, combined with the debris caused by the Chinese ASAT test, added nearly 6,000 objects to NORAD's catalog. Anyway, I'm not reading the whole article. I don't want to be too redundant here, but I think the point's been made that there's a problem here. The article concludes by noting that in NASA, efforts to remove this debris were being called unrealistic. Prevention was being emphasized instead, which does make a certain amount of sense. When the author tried to check in with the person running the program two years after it began, he discovered that it had been killed. And NASA barred him from calling its head ever again. And yet, the man's models showed that the new orbital catastrophe is only growing more probable. And here's my punchline to all this. Mega constellations of satellites, such as Elon Musk's Starlink, are being put into orbit. By one estimate, at the current rate, there will be 50,000 new satellites serving the Internet. Yes, serving the Internet in 10 years. So what are the odds of Don Kessler's Kessler effect causing these satellites to begin to collide with one another in an ever-increasing cascade? Well, we're going to guess pretty good. So if you're out one night and you spot Elon Musk's Starlinks coming over in, uh, in, in, in a chain of bright lights above you, realize that we're probably doing something really, really stupid. Can we stop it? I don't know. I kind of doubt it. Money talks. I don't know. Maybe this wacky Star Wars creation that goes back to Ronald Reagan of uh, putting weapons up into space, maybe we'll be able to blast some of these uh, objects uh, to smithereens. I doubt it, but but maybe, maybe. Chances are they'll try to do that and they'll just make more objects. And since I seem to be the voice of doom and gloom, let's add one more. The Earth just set a new temperature record. I understand down in Death Valley, California, which held the previous world record of 134 degrees Fahrenheit, they recently hit 135. And you know, I think I'd be a real lout to end the program on that note. So I simply must find an item of good news from the scientific world. And well, here's one. According to New Scientist magazine, the stomach of cows might be able to digest plastics. Evidently, enzymes made by bacteria in the stomachs of cows can break down some plastics. And this discovery could lead to new ways of dealing with such materials after they are used. George Gubitz at the University of Natural Resources and Life Sciences in Austria and his colleagues visited a local slaughterhouse and collected samples of liquid and from one of the four parts of a young cow's stomach, the rumen. They found that the liquid contained many types of enzymes, including cutinases. The team demonstrated that those enzymes could break down three types of widely used polyesters, polyethylene terphthalate, PET, polybutylene adipate, terphthalate, PBAT, and polyethylene furanoate, PEF, often used to make plastics, often used to make products such as bottles, textiles, and bags. The enzymes degraded the plastics within one to three days and exposed to a temperature of about 40 degrees Celsius to match that of a cow's stomach. Researchers noted that the diet of cows contains foods that have a shell that is similar to polyesters, said Gerbitz, which explains why the microbes in the rumen 
produce enzymes that can also deal with these synthetic polyesters. Now please, any of you out here who have cattle, Radio Parallax is not suggesting that you grind up plastic bottles and feed them to your cows. But it is possible that these enzymes could be used to break down polyesters on a larger commercial scale. The magazine notes that some researchers are cautious about this idea since the approach has yet to be proven any better than existing enzyme technologies. But hey, maybe it'll work. We hope so. Think we can go out on that one, Mr. McMillan? Yes. <laughs> okay. All right, that about wraps it up. We avoided most of our usual stuff on today's program, which is frankly probably a good thing to do on a regular basis. We certainly enjoyed our talk with Earl Swift in segment one. His book, Across the Airless Wilds, is a pretty good read. We, we highly recommend it. And this program, like all of them, was produced by Edward McMillan, who has no interest in driving a rover on the lunar surface, even if he can get by all those dangerous low-Earth orbiting particles. He says if he's going to go to the Sea of Tranquility, they better give us something that can go more than 11 miles an hour. All right, I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We'll be back again sooner than you think. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. Looking for adventure. And whatever comes 